Well, good morning, La Jolla Community Church. Welcome to worship. Uh, we're going through a series right now called, What's Your Part in the Mission of God? Uh, what is your part in the mission of God? God uh, has completed His mission in Jesus Christ, but the mission continues uh, through His church, through His people. Uh, that's us. Anybody who believes in Jesus, confesses Jesus as Lord and Savior, who has confessed Him publicly, who has been baptized, who receives the, the sacraments, uh, baptism, Holy Communion, which we'll be celebrating today. Uh, and so, God has elected to work through His church, which seems like a really bad plan a lot of the time, don't you think? Uh, probably uh, the church uh, has never been uh, at a lower ebb of, of reputational uh, integrity right now, the whole church, Protestant, Catholic. Uh, there's just a sense of either indifference or, or, or uh, resistance or resentment. Uh, and so why would God do that? Uh, we, were, we were exploring that in this series. What's your part in God's mission uh, in the world? Because he's, he's calling people to gather together in His name, to become part of His body over which Christ is ahead, to discern their gifts, uh, to use everything He's entrusting to them uh, to make disciples of all nations. Uh, and everybody feels like they're not qualified. 100% of the people would say, I'm not qualified. Some brave people say, well, but I'll jump in. Uh, and everybody else is kind of hanging back. So this is the context for this morning. What's your part in the mission of God? And in this season of, in, uh, of uncertainty, one of the big questions people uh, uh, are asking, in a time of uncertainty, what people are asking is this, who can I depend on? Who and what can I depend on? Who and what can I count on? Who can I trust? Let that sink in. Uh, in whom do you put your trust? Uh, just from a human level. Who are the people in whom you put your trust? Who are the people in your life that you would say, these are dependable people? Um, I can count on these people. And, and now let's make it really personal. Uh, are you dependable? Are you dependable? And you might say right away, well, that depends. Depends. Let me ask it this way. Who is depending on you? Who is counting on you? Who's hoping, praying, believing that you'll do the right thing in the right way at the right time? Not that you're perfect, but that you are dependable. How are you doing making and keeping commitments? That's a great working definition of being dependable. Are you a person who makes and keeps commitments? Now, I know people, <clears throat> I, don't know, I don't know if they admit this, but as they see them, uh, they don't make commitments. They make very few commitments. Why? Because then nobody holds them accountable for following through on those commitments. I see other people so overcommitted, I want to say to them, hey, uh, find that rhythm of work and rest because, wow, uh, right now you are committed to everything and to everyone. You're going to burn out, uh, you're going to flame out, uh, you're going to wear out, and that's not good. But somehow uh, finding that right rhythm of work and rest, making and keeping commitments is at the heart of being a dependable person. And of course, at the heart of that is wisdom. That's why we constantly say uh, in this church, are you reading the Word of God? Are you feeding on the Word of God? Are you becoming wise through the Word of God? so that you can make the kinds of discerning decisions that will allow you to make and keep commitments. 
And of course, we, we constantly ask the question, who can I trust and who can trust me? Who can I trust and who can trust me? I love the way that Jesus said, let your yeses be yes and your noes be no. You can't say yes to everything. Not every need is your calling. There are so many needs calling out for a response, and often we have a sense of false guilt that we can't respond to every need. But it's really important that we have made some clear commitments so that when a commitment is presented to us, an invitation to commit, we can say, you know what, I really, I really support what you're doing. Here's where I'm committed. I'm already committed here. I need to be faithful to this. And that way, likewise, you can respect other people's commitments. <clears throat> but the biggest question of all, of course, is can we count on God? Is God dependable? If God is calling us to trust in Him, to follow Him, to believe in Him, to submit ourselves to Him, to obey Him, do we really believe that He's dependable? And it's not just a matter of what we say, it's a matter of what we do, right? The whole book of James talks about this. I'd love to see your faith in action. I hear what you're saying, but I'm watching what you're doing. Are you learning to make and keep commitments that are, are forming you in a person who is certainly dependable and can be trusted? And are you trusting in God enough to lean in by faith to trust that the things He calls you to do, the things He is telling you through His Word to do, are things that even though they might right now seem beyond your, your grasp or your capacity, He is preparing you and is calling you into experiences that would shape you to do things you never thought possible. We get to do the things that Jesus did. That's not an outrageous, arrogant brag, a boast. It's saying if, we're, if we lean in, we will find ourselves doing things that Jesus did. And so the answer to that question, can I trust God, is a big yes. Here's why. Uh, Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection from the dead means that we can trust God. God has kept His promise in Christ. And so I want to walk uh, through a passage with you from John's Gospel, John chapter 21, verses 1 to 19, uh, reflecting on impact that comes out of the resurrection. Uh, because there's all kinds of theories about the resurrection. Well, Jesus didn't really die. He was revived and went on with his life. And somebody else would say, well, it was never really a, a man dying. It, it was God, and so uh, it's not really a, a material thing. It's just a spiritual thing. Uh, neither of those are satisfying. Neither of those uh, views on, on one end of the continuum or the other uh, really align with the facts. The facts presented to us in Scripture... Uh, would indicate that, that Jesus, fully God, fully man, was crucified, dead, and buried, and He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He will return again in glory, creating a new heaven and a new earth, of which we are the, the first fruits of that creation. So here's a demonstration of that. John wants us to understand this is the real deal. <clears throat> and so here we are in John chapter 21. And by the way, there are 12 New Testament references to Jesus' appearing after His resurrection. Uh, you can see a descriptor of some of these uh, in um, 1 Corinthians uh, 15. Uh, Paul walks through a description of, of some of the, the occasions of Jesus uh, appearing before people. But there were 12 of them, and of course, this is the third time He appears to people. So it says, afterward, Jesus appeared again to His disciples by the Sea of Galilee, often also called the Sea of Tiberias in some Bible translations. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, 
also known as Didymus, the twin, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, John and James, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, if you're not a fisherman, you'd say, well, no, duh, they went out at night. Who could catch anything at night? That's how fish on the Sea of Galilee, uh, the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Kinneret, all these names for the same body of water, that's how they catch fish. That's how they fish. They go out at night, they, they light lights, and the fish are attracted to those lights. Uh, there are 18 kinds of fish in the Sea of Galilee, 10 of which are commercially viable, everything from little tiny sardines uh, to big, giant uh, versions of carp. Uh, those are the 10 edible fish. And in between is a fish called a tilapia. Uh, nowadays, it's called St. Peter's fish, and you can have it at fish restaurants around uh, the lake to see. Uh, very delicious, very mild. Even people who don't like fish like them if there's a lot of French fries with them. So they went out fishing at night, but they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? Which is a really bad thing to call out to people who are fishing. But of course, Jesus had a purpose, as he did in everything he did. He had a purpose. He was always living out of his purpose. Friends, haven't you caught any fish? No, they answered. Now, why would he ask them that? It seems like it's setting them up for being humiliated. Uh, he's simply setting them up to respond to their need. Three years earlier, Jesus had said something similar to these fishermen who had been fishing all night, were very discouraged, very tired, and he suggested that they drop their net over to the other side of the boat. They did. They caught a lot of fish, and that was the beginning of them being absolutely blown away by Jesus. So here we are again. No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. That's not right as in, hey, the correct side, but <laughs> the other side, the right side. The other right side. Now, we don't know exactly where he was. It, chances are, though, he was in a place where they often met, where they often gathered. And it's a place that has a spring. Actually, it has seven springs. Small springs that all uh, leak into the lake and uh, are warm. And they're very nutrient-laden, and so it's a great place for fish to gather. Uh, so in all probability, Jesus can see fish that these guys are too tired to see, and the way the light is coming up, they, maybe they can't see them. And he says, hey, try there. Well, sure enough, they do. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now, this might seem like a funny way to refer to somebody, the disciple whom Jesus loved. John is writing this account. John is a disciple whom Jesus loved. He had a very special relationship with, with Peter, <coughs> James, and John. And uh, uh, John being the youngest of the disciples, uh, he, it, it, John, uh, it was a really wonderful mentoring relationship that Jesus had with John. And so in this self-referential way, trying to be humble about it, kind of a humble brag, John says, <laughs> oh boy, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. So John, the youngest, probably the best vision, can see who it is on the beach. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, 
He wrapped his outer garment around him and jumped into the water. Uh, I love the details in this whole account. All these details, telling details, to let us know that the writer knows exactly what he's talking about. That this is a real place, a real event. And so when fishermen fish, they would take off an outer garment and leave on what would be basically the equivalent of a bathing suit or shorts. And so in Jewish culture, when you go to meet somebody and greet somebody, you need to be clothed as a, as a, as a form of respect. See, so why would he throw his clothes on the jump of the water? That wouldn't work in our culture. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Clearly, Jesus, in his purpose, had already prepared to serve them breakfast. Uh, there's something so beautiful about this. Uh, there's something so inviting, so hospitable. Now, these disciples have seen Jesus, but again, they're still processing, no doubt, still processing all the events that led to his crucifixion and his resurrection. And some of those events at the very end, when they scattered and fled out of absolute sheer terror, and abject fear, still haunt them. You know, we abandon him. And the worst uh, of that was Peter, whom in the presence of the other disciples at the final meal together said, you know, these guys might, might leave you. I will never leave you. It was a wonderful, earnest way of saying, I'm committed to you. Unfortunately, the way he said it was at the expense of the other disciples. You know, I don't know about these guys but I love you way more. I'm way more committed. I will be with you to the very end and beyond. We'll go down together. And of course, it didn't work out that way. And so here's Simon Peter, still processing his own failure, his own regret, perhaps his own shame. The woulda, coulda, shoulda. You know how that is, right? Probably you can think of something right now that you'd say, oh, I wish I wouldn't have said, I wish I could pull those words back. I wish I could redo that situation. I'd love to have a replay where I could, I could get it right again. i get it right uh, for the first time and, and play it again. You know that sense of, uh, it's just hanging in there and it's unresolved. Uh, maybe you have unfinished business in your life. There's some things that, that haunt you, that dog you, that sort of undermine the fact that I know I'm loved by God unconditionally. I know His grace is sufficient. I know he's giving me everything I need to be a new creation in Christ. I no longer live. It's Christ who lives in me. And yet, and yet, and yet, I have regret. If you do, uh, you could be in this circle of friends with Jesus on the beach. And watch what he does with Simon Peter. As you maybe need to renew uh, your understanding of where you are and how you can move beyond it. Because if you have unfinished business, if, you, if you're living in regret... Uh, this is a good day to let go of that, to move beyond that. So here's this fire burning, fish on it. It must have smelled great, some bread. Oh, my gosh, just exactly what you want uh, when you come off a long night of fishing, and especially when you're empty-handed, but now you're celebrating. What was a, a fail is now a big victory. <clears throat> so Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with this, so many, uh, uh, the net was not, but even with so many, the net was not torn. 
Why 153? Uh, that's the question that we all ask when we read this. Well, okay, that's kind of odd. 153. It's not just a lot of fish, more fish than usual, a great haul. It was 153. And so, of course, that invites all kinds of attempts to explain this. Uh, I would just say it's fish. It's fishing. When you catch fish, you want to say, yeah, I caught fish. I caught six. I caught three. This is how big they were. Here's my picture. And remember, when you take a fish picture, you always hold the fish way in front of you and you way back because it makes it look like the, the biggest fish uh, you, you can imagine. It fills the frame of the camera and you're way back here like this. That's an old fishing trick that everybody does it. Uh, 153. Some people have said, well, there's a, there's a combination of numbers here that has symbolic meaning. Well, you can make any number of narratives fit the numbers. Uh, one person said, well, you know, it's the number of fish in the lake. I've already told you there's 18 types of fish in the lake. Uh, regardless, we don't know. We just know that it was a sign of substance, that Jesus did, had done something substantial to bless them. Unequivocally, he had blessed them, and they felt blessed. So that's, that's, the, that's the powerful thing here. And it could have been that at the end of the day, they're going to divide them out. So who gets how many fish, right? So Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. So why would they even be confused? Uh, maybe he had a cloak on, it's early in the morning, it's cold, and so he has that pulled over him. Maybe it's, again, them processing, I know he appeared to us, but was that really, really him? Did I just imagine that? And yet they know in their heart of hearts, and they can see, you know, it's him. And yet he's resurrected, so it's him, but more of him. It's more him than ever before. Jesus came, so he, he, he comes to them, took the bread and gave it to them. He serves them, the bread. He does the same with the fish. He's ministering to them. And, of course, John tells us this was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, now here's the first of ever come to Jesus meeting. You've heard of the phrase, uh, come to Jesus meeting? It's when you want to have a, a really serious conversation about hard things, but hoping for a good outcome. So here's the original first documented come to Jesus meeting between Simon Peter and Jesus. And Jesus uses his formal name. He doesn't say Peter, Petros. Uh, P Peter, Petros, rock, was the name that Jesus had given to him. You know, nobody was no named that in the first century. In the early first century, nobody was named Peter, believe it or not. It's a hard thing to think about. Peter, such a common, wonderful name. Nobody would call their kid Petros. Somebody has made the observation that the most, most known name at one point in the first century was Nero. Nobody names their kid Nero. Lots of people name their kid Peter. But he calls him formally, Simon, son of John. This is a formal uh, conversation. It's a serious conversation. Do you truly love me more than these? And is he, did he wave his hand? Did he look around? We don't know. This is one of those enigmatic questions. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? These what? More than his love of the other disciples? Peter, do you, do you love... Those guys, more than you love me? It's kind of an awkward question to ask. Not really a Jesus-like question. 
more than their love for Jesus? Peter, do you love me more than those guys love me? It doesn't seem like a question Jesus would ask. Unless he's getting at the fact that, you know, remember you, you, you said that these guys wouldn't be with me and you would. He's not rubbing it in his face as much as reminding him of the context of this meeting. We're going to resolve some things here. There's work to be done. There's a new you in view, Peter. You are a new creation in me. I want to help you understand how to embrace that. I think he's just saying this. Do you love me more than these? Your net, your boat, your identity as a fisherman. A fisherman that can spend all night fishing and still catch no fish. Do you love me more than these? Because there's a sense in which what does Peter do by way of default dealing with the overwhelming regret of his denial of Jesus. He goes back to what's familiar and comforting. He's fishing with his buddies. Remember what Peter had been through with Jesus. Jesus told Peter he'd be a fisher of men when they first met. Remember that? Peter had confessed Jesus as Messiah and committed to follow him always. Do you remember that? You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, that's been revealed to you by God. He was the rock on which Jesus would build his church. On this rock, I shall build my church. At the final meal, uh, that last supper, when they celebrated Passover together, when Peter had made his declaration of bravado and commitment of dependability, Jesus said to him, you know, Satan has requested that you would be sifted like wheat, but once you've been sifted, you will return and comfort your brothers. Jesus had predicted that before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. This is the history that they had together. A deep, deep history over a three-year period. It didn't end well. But it's not done yet, right? It's unfinished business that they're discussing. Jesus had depended on him. Jesus had depended on Peter. And Peter had shown himself to be undependable. Denying Jesus those three times publicly on the night he was arrested. So it's awkward. Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. Now, Jesus asks the question uh, using a specific Greek word. Uh, the word we know is agape, unconditional love. And Peter answers in, in, in all three of these responses with the word for brotherly love, phileo. So uh, make of that what you will. Uh, it's, it's, it's tempting to read more into it than we should, but it's enough to say Jesus is saying, do you love me with this unconditional love with which I love you? Peter's responding, you know, I love you with a human love. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And of course, Peter's reliving that night when he denied him three times. Yes, yes. Yes, because those, those three times he said, no, no, no. He said, Lord, you know all things. You know what I did, and, and you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. And then in verse 19, he says, follow me. 
So he's promoted him from being a fisherman and a fisherman to a shepherd of his sheep. And what does a shepherd do? He cares for the sheep. He looks out for the sheep. And he's willing to lay down his life for the sheep. Uh, and so Peter really did grow into that role as the great shepherd of the sheep and had a fantastic ministry his whole life. And he was willing to actually die as a martyr for Christ. And to this day, if you ever are in Rome uh, and you're able to finally enter into St. Peter's, uh, you're blown away by the magnificence of it. And what was the magnificence built on a simple confession of faith. Yes, Lord, I love you, and I will feed your sheep. Wow. So the call to follow Jesus is intensely personal. Uh, if you're sitting with other people right now, they can't follow Jesus for you. Your parents can't follow Jesus for you. You can't appoint one of your kids, okay, you be the one in the family to follow Jesus. You know, it, 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 um, generations ago, <clears throat> families would often appoint one of the sons to be a priest. They'd appoint one to be a soldier, and they'd appoint one uh, to be involved in commerce. Isn't that interesting? You're going to serve the church, you're going to serve the country, and you're going to serve us because you're the one that we're going to depend on in our old age. But following Jesus is intensely personal. We're called into a, com a community, but, but it's one generation at a time. You can't, you're not a Christian because your parents are. Your parents hopefully will be a fantastic influence that would bring you to a place uh, if you have not already done so, to confess Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. But we've got to own it personally, not as rugged individuals apart from any other community, but as part of the community. We understand that we are part of a body of Christ. And all those fantastic descriptions, we're becoming a, a living temple, an active body over which Jesus is the head. We each have our part. A conglomeration of gifts that bless the body and bless the people uh, in the world in the name of Christ. So the question is now, will you trust him? In this case, it appears that Peter is feeling like he is undeserving of Jesus' trust and acceptance and love. Do you feel that? I wrestled with, with my mom about this. You know, just, mom, mom, receive Jesus. She just felt so unworthy. I talked about this at Christmas Eve. She just felt so unworthy to receive this unconditional love, unconditional grace. She felt like Peter. You know, I've done too many things that I regret, and I, I haven't lived up to my, her own very high standards. It took a long time, but finally she came to a place where she said, okay, I, I, I can understand this. I can receive this. I don't feel worthy, but I will receive it as his gift. That's where Peter was. Maybe that's where you are. That's where all of us should be. None of us deserve it like a trophy presentation and a word ceremony. We receive it as, oh, my God, thank you for your unconditional love and grace and mercy shown to me. That's why you know, when revival breaks out, revival is this unique situation where it seems like people have been praying um, <clears throat> and preaching and talking about Jesus, but it's not tied to a program, a crusade. It's not tied to some specific event as much as it's people praying, and it's as if God just f drops into the room. And what you notice historically when you read about these, these times of revival is that people are so aware of their own sin that they, they confess their sin, they confess their sin, they confess their sin, and they praise God, praise God, praise God. Those two things come together. I hope the longer you walk with Jesus, the more you are absolutely immersed in his luxurious love and lavishing in his incredible grace, amazing grace as it's been called. But that you always have a sense that, oh, this is so good. Not that I really feel bad deep inside, I don't deserve it, but rather, you know what, this is such a gift. And the longer I live, the more I walk with him, the greater I understand 
profound nature, the profound nature of that gift. <clears throat> so Jesus is calling Peter to trust him and be trustworthy for him. So here's a, here's a takeaway for us. Being a dependable person is a choice. Being and becoming a dependable person is a choice. You choose to become dependable. It's not a choice to become perfect. None of us will ever be perfect. But we can choose to become dependable. And even in our failings, we want to fail forward. I failed. I, I, I didn't fulfill my commitment. What, did, what can I learn? How can I do that right, do that better? Maybe I, may, I make smarter commitments. Maybe I don't promise the world. Maybe I don't do what Peter did. These guys might run away, but I'll always be there. Maybe you'll say, to the best of my ability, I'm in. I'm, I'm committed. And you'll become wise in how you pursue living into those commitments you make. Easy to make commitments, hard to keep them. That's why some people just don't make them. That's not the answer. But to make a commitment and to learn to become a dependable person is a choice you make every day. You choose to be a dependable person. Now, sometimes you might feel like you're being used. You're the person that everybody knows will say yes, so they all come to you and, and you feel like you're doing everything. That's why saying yes and saying no is so important in becoming a dependable person. Being wise in how you make those commitments. So it just doesn't happen. It's a decision you make. In the face of tough circumstances or disappointments or even inconveniences, a woman I know, a woman I know is suffering horribly with a, a debilitating disease. She can't even take care of herself. She's the most radiant, wonderful woman. And yet the frustration for her, she can't take care of herself. Her husband of 40 plus years of marriage has risen to the challenge in a way that's breathtaking, mind-blowing. You knew he would because that's the kind of guy he is. You, weren't, you, know, you never know until you're in that situation. But here's this man being spectacularly dependable. And what's happening here? He's giving her a precious gift. What's he doing? He's teaching, he's teaching his children a life-affirming, a life-changing lesson. This is how you love. This is what it looks like to be dependable in love. And they all have bad days, and they all have good days. And all days are hard right now. But you see the power of that? You want to know what kind of man he is? Just take a look. Every father of every bride hopes that's the man that his daughter is marrying. Every child in every family hopes that's the dad that is their dad. The mom that is their mom. The power of a dependable person is that they inspire others. They move others to sacrifice and suffer for the right things. There's no greater gift or legacy we can leave. It would be enough that every family would say, our grandparents and great-grandparents were people of such dependable commitment. This is the legacy they've left to us. So dependable people say, you can count on me no matter what. When they can't keep commitments, they take responsibility for that. So, Life isn't predictable, and neither is Jesus. Let me pivot here. Having said all this about being dependable, life is not predictable. We do not know what's going to happen. That, that family, that woman did not know she'd have this debilitating disease. That man is a young man standing with his bride in La California on a beautiful day. Didn't know that someday this is the situation they'd be in. But he's been preparing all those years, learning how to love. All predictability. But you know what's funny? Life isn't predictable, and neither is Jesus. That's what kind of throws us for a loop. That's what threw those religious leaders in Jesus' day for a loop. He was not predictable, but he was utterly 
dependable. He did everything one would expect God to do. He was just unpredictable in the way that he did it. Why are you healing people on the Sabbath? Why are you caring for a woman caught in adultery? Why do you care about the poor? Why do you care about this? Why do you care about that? He was unpredictable in their sight, but he was absolutely consistently dependable. He always keeps his promises and fulfills his commitments. Even death couldn't stop him. This is a theme in life. You've probably noticed this. Every great coach is dependable but unpredictable. That's how games are won, <laughs> right? Both teams know what the coach could do, but they can only guess what he will do. This is why that, the big game is always the big game. You're thinking, all right, what do they have in their bag? What do they have in their strategy? What's in their head? What have they been cooking up for such a time as this? We know dependably this coach is a good coach. What unpredictable thing will they do? This is one of the funnest things about watching a sporting event. The player that does the unpredictable thing, but after, after, after it's done, you think, oh my gosh, that was so consistent with how dependable they are. They worked a little harder. They thought about it a little bit more. Uh, if you like sushi, and you go into a sushi restaurant, the greatest thing you could experience is omakase. You look at the sushi chef and you say, omakase. And it means I entrust myself to you. We trust those coaches. We trust Jesus. Not because they're predictable, because they are dependable. How are you doing in trusting yourself and your plans to God? How are you doing making and keeping commitments to serve God? That's the lifeblood that flows through you. You have the blood that flows through your system. That's your, your physical lifeblood. But your lifeblood are the commitments you make and keep to the Lord. Why? Because that's the place where he does his work in you. That's the place where he shows up and surprises you. Brings you together, knits you together, makes you a unity, a whole, not a fragmented, walking, talking conundrum and contradiction. As we make and keep commitments, Jesus does his work in us. What's your part in the mission of God? It's making and keeping commitments and seeing how Jesus will work in you and through you. He wants to bless you to bless others. We see this starting with Abraham. We see it continuing in us. Who's depending on you and counting on you? God calls us to be dependable in the face of the unpredictable. Do you think this is an unpredictable time? As of November 2019, nobody predicted this. Not even in December, not even in January. By February, a few people in the know who do this professionally were saying, hey, I think this could be really bad. By March, people were saying, maybe, maybe it's going to get bad. By April, we're all convinced this is bad. This is unpredictable. So unpredictable, they call it novel. How are you doing in an unpredictable situation? Are you being you, which means are you being dependable? You see how this all comes together in a practical way? Our commitments to the Lord reflect themselves in unpredictable situations beyond our control, but certainly within His. We entrust ourselves to the Lord. We do our best to be worthy of his trust, knowing that through his powerful spirit in us, he is more than enough. And so maturity is a process of becoming trustworthy and reliable. That's what we look forward to in our children growing up. We give them more freedom, more opportunities to be responsible, to respond well, and they grow in their trust of you, and so they do things that they maybe would be normally a little bit afraid to do. And then you grow in, their, in your trust of them. This is the beautiful thing about raising a child who becomes a teenager that you can trust. A young adult you can trust. 
And when your kids get married, you hope that other parents are raising their kids the same way, that these are two trustworthy people making this commitment, not knowing what lies ahead, but knowing that every day Jesus walks with them. So maturity is becoming trustworthy and reliable. We're talking about spiritual, emotional, moral development. And we contribute to this process with support and accountability. This is what I want to wrap up with. Support and accountability. It's one thing to say, you should be dependable. I really prefer dependable people. (laughs) Or I'm going to be a dependable person. But what we need is support in that. None of us really have it in us. All of us can fail. Even if we don't want to fail, we can fail. We help people make and keep commitments. This is an act of love. We invite people as an act of love to help us make and keep commitments. We need one another. We are better together. How do you define support and accountability? Here's how I define it. Support says, I believe you can do this and I trust you to do this. Support says, I believe you can do that. And I'm going to trust you to do what's necessary to be able to do that. But support isn't enough. Support is, is just another version of saying, hey, I think you can do it. Go for it. Accountability gets in super close. Not to try to control people or to dominate them or to catch them doing something wrong. That's the misuse and abuse of the word accountability. I'm going to watch you long enough. I'm going to catch you doing something wrong. No, accountability is this. Well, when will you do that? And what can I do to help you do that? How can I support you in some practical ways? How can I pray for you? What resources do you need? What what connections can I help you make? What bridges can I help you build? It's you, it's yours, but I'm here for you. Does that not give you the kind of courage, uh, what they they call in the military, I've got your six, somebody's got your back? So you will always feel, if you're in the right position, like, ah, I could fail here. But if if you're aware of what's going on around you, if you're in a relationship with people that care about you, you can say, you know, I, I think I might fail. And what they're going to say is, yeah, probably you could. But so what? We're with you. And more likely than not, you are going to succeed because we're going to help you succeed. It'll be your success. But we're with you. We're your team. None of us can do this on our own. There's no such thing as a self-made man or woman. All of us have to be responsible to take charge of our own lives, to use what God has entrusted to us as we submit ourselves to him and, and invite others around us to help us with that process. So sometimes support and accountability just means getting out of the way so people can do their work. But more often, we need to help one another make a way in our work. There's no shame in saying, I need your help. I don't know what to do. I got some ideas, but I'm not sure how to connect them. That's all part of being the body of Christ, a team, this holy living temple, an active, dynamic community, internally connected but externally focused. Support and accountability are the gifts we offer to help one another succeed. So, are you humbly asking for support and accountability? Are you humbly asking for support and accountability? Why don't you know what to ask for? Start by asking, hey, do you see anything in me that concerns you? Do you are you aware of some things I'm, I'm saying or doing that I'm not aware of perhaps? Are there some blind spots you're seeing that I don't see? It just starts with the questions. How are you experiencing me? 
How are you seeing what I'm doing and how I'm doing it? Any concerns, questions, thoughts, contributions you'd like to make? And people won't at first believe you want to know. See, I'm the first to admit it, but I'm always the last one to know. Until finally somebody says, look, this is what's going on. Oh, thank you. It's embarrassing, it's awkward, but thank you so much. So are you humbly asking for support and accountability? Are you graciously offering support and accountability? Oh, no, really? You need something from me? Yes, I do. I'll take responsibility for this. I just need to have a sense of perspective and proportion. Do you have any wise input for me? Yeah, keep doing what you're doing. Okay, great. The goal is becoming responsible and dependable people. This is how we grow in embracing our part in the mission of God. You are included in that. If you're five years old, if you're six years old, if you're eight, if you're 10, 12, 15, 18, 20, 25, 30, hey man, if you're really old, like way over, if you're over 30, this applies to you. Healthy churches are filled with dependable people depending on God together. Lord Jesus, that's my prayer for me and for my brothers and sisters. I pray that we could be people who are learning to be dependent on you, dependable for you, together in you as your people. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see how we can offer support and accountability to one another. I pray that you'd help us see the ways we can receive support and godly accountability from one another. Lord, as we come to this table to celebrate Holy Communion, We believe that your grace is sufficient for every unpredictable thing in us and around us in life. Your grace, your love, your power, your abiding presence is enough. We pray this in Jesus' name as we receive these, these holy elements, these sacraments in your name. And in your name we pray, amen. Well, as you know, on that night that Jesus was betrayed in that final meal with his disciples, he took unleavened bread. And he blessed it and broke it, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took a cup, a cup of wine. It symbolizes the covenant that God makes in his own blood with us. So Jesus says, this is my covenant. This is my blood given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So as you eat the bread, as you drink from the cup, or as you take some of the bread and dip it in the cup, however you're doing it, wherever you are. If you have one of those little communion kits, uh, the the bread is part of the the top of that little unit, the juice underneath. Uh, If you're using other kinds of juice or other kinds of bread, it doesn't matter. What matters is you're saying, Lord, in your name, I'm remembering your sacrifice for me, your body given for me. And by the way, it's not his body broken. His body was not broken but given. It was a sacrificial lamb, no bone broken. We often say Jesus is Christ, Jesus' body broken for you, but it's, it's the bread is broken, but his body is given. So Jesus' body given for you. If you're serving one another, just say this is Christ's body given for you, sacrificed for you because he loves you so much. And this is Christ's blood shed for you. And so whether you dip one or the other or eat it and drink, the manner isn't important. It's the fact that you are coming to him receiving his love, his grace, being refreshed and renewed in your faith, confessing your sin, accepting his forgiveness, and celebrating your reconciliation.
So once again, uh, thank you for joining us in worship. Enjoy the rest of this day. Uh, enjoy those a couple of announcements, and then enjoy the beautiful music. Uh, thank you for Kalina and uh, Chris and, and Craig uh, playing some beautiful music. God bless you. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon us all, giving us his grace, his mercy, his love, his power, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. of this world will fade the treasures of our God remain here I empty myself to owe this world nothing and find everything in you the riches of this world will The treasures of our God remain. Here I empty myself to owe this world nothing and find everything in you. I surrender, I surrender, I surrender. But yours alone. 